You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Jake. I'm an associate pastor here at Schweitzer. It's a joy to be here this morning. It's a joy to wear the color red. You guys ever heard of uh, color psychology, color theory? There are actually people in the world who study how colors affect our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, and maybe even our behaviors. So for example, the color blue represents calmness and responsibility. It's actually more friendly than most other colors in the sense that we are more likely to trust people wearing blue, to trust businesses uh, that have blue on their signage, which is why a lot of financial companies use the color blue, especially deep blue. It is a deep sense of responsibility that we get uh, with the color blue. The color yellow can create a sense of energy and joy and cheer. And yet too much yellow, if it's too intense, can create a lot of anxiety. It can create frustration. In fact, people are more likely to lose their tempers in yellow rooms. Do you know that? Babies are more likely to cry in yellow rooms. All right, so if you got a baby on the way, don't paint that room yellow. Now, red. Red is a hot color. We associate red with, with passion, with love, intensity, focus determination, even war. Red can actually have a physical effect on us. Research shows that the color red increases our heart rate. The color red increases our rate of respiration that we breathe. It can even increase your metabolism. So you want to get in shape, wear more red. All right? Uh, If you want to get in the zone for the day or a business meeting or whatever, paint your walls red, wear a red tie. If you got a really, really important meeting, wear a red suit. All right, red does something to us. Now, Tiger Woods is a golfer who wears red every Sunday that he plays in the tournament. you guys know that? Every Sunday, which is the last round of every golf tournament, he wears red. And he's done this ever since he was a child, ever since he started winning. It's kind of a superstition for him. Now, he hasn't won in a few years, but in my childhood, in those uh, 15 years of his prime, there was no one like Tiger Woods. I mean, he, was, he wore that red, and man, he was fierce. He was focused. He was intense. 
on that last round of golf. And everyone feared him. Now, he has not won a tournament since, what's the year? 2013? It's been nearly five years since he won a tournament, and yet, he continues to wear red on Sundays. I give him credit for that, because in spite of all of his failures, in spite of the fact that he's becoming older and weaker, and he hasn't won a tournament in five years, he still believes that he can win. So he continues to wear red. Now, Pentecost Sunday is what we're celebrating today. It's a, the holiday that we Christians call Pentecost. And it's a day where we wear red to celebrate the day that the Holy Spirit fell on the church in tongues of fire. All the disciples were, were gathered in a room. And like a mighty rushing wind, it says, the Holy Spirit fell down. Like tongues of fire on the disciples. And they began to speak in, in, in different tongues. People of all nations were gathered around. They heard the gospel. It was this miraculous event. Peter proclaimed the gospel for the first time. And on that day, nearly 3,000 people were saved. Prior to that day, the disciples were timid. But on that day, when they received the fire, when they received the power of the Holy Spirit, and from that day forward... They preached the gospel boldly. They lived out the gospel boldly. Things were fundamentally different in the church after they received the Holy Spirit. Prior to, the, to that day, they were in hiding. They were cooped up, waiting, fearful. And on that day, they became different. When the church received the power of the Holy Spirit, things were fundamentally different. And this is the day when God's victory over evil and sin and death was appropriated to the church. This was the day that the kingdom of God started winning over darkness and sin and evil in the lives of every believer who received the Holy Spirit. So we wear red today not only to remember that these things happened. We wear red to proclaim a present reality. Because in the Holy Spirit, our lives are fundamentally different than they were before. They are fundamentally different than they were before in the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? We're going to talk about that today. Because in the Holy Spirit... Jesus' victory over evil and darkness and sin is ours for the taking. And because we still believe that in spite of our failures, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our age, in spite of all the times that we've messed up or fallen short or continued to sin, in spite of all of these things, his victory is ours that we can still win over the battle against sin and evil and darkness. That is why we still wear red today. So I have a question for you. Are you wearing red today? I don't mean literally. I mean figuratively. Do you still believe you can win? Or have you resigned to something less than what God's will is for you in your life, which is complete and total victory over sin? A 
I think most Christians, including myself, after a short period of trying, really believing that this was possible, have just retired from the game. It's too hard. We failed too many times. We just, we believe we can't win, so we decide to just play for fun. We take what we can get, and we don't bother ourselves with the naivete. You know, there's, there's youthful ambitions that we once had. That victory through Christ Jesus is truly ours, here, now, today, and forever. My goal this morning and I believe, I believe God's goal this morning is to restore our youthful ambition. Is to restore these beliefs that are true, that are biblical, that sound naive and incredibly optimistic. But it is the gospel, and we need to cling to it and not sell it short. That's my goal. I want you to know that your life in the Holy Spirit is fundamentally different than it was before. You have a power within you that you may not have recognized in a while. And as I preach what I'm about to preach today, that we really can be perfected in God's love in this life, that through God's Spirit and His power, we can overcome all sin in this life. I understand the emotions that you may feel as a result of that. I understand the pushback that you may have in your heart and your spirit because of that. I, I really Trust me, I do. But I have to preach it because it's the gospel. I have, I have to preach it because it's the truth. And I hope by the end of this you'll know why. We're going to read out of Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 13 to begin. And then we'll finish later on, verses 14 through 17. The Apostle Paul writes these words. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. God, that's a bold statement. We're going to come back to it. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God living in you. That's also a bold statement. A bold assumption, really, that God writes to the church. You are not controlled by your sinful nature. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. <clears throat> Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Another bold statement. For if you live by its dictates, you will die, but if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. Now I want to go back to verses 7 and 8. Like I said we would, listen to this. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under control of their sinful nature can never Please, 
God. Do you realize that your situation is fundamentally different than it was before? Listen to this statement. Those who are controlled by their sinful nature cannot please God. It is not possible. Before you had the Spirit, you cannot please God. Now, that's offensive to some. That, that is offensive. And it's partly because we don't understand fully what it means to have the Holy Spirit, right? Here's the thing. I think, I think we suffer from making this mistake that the Holy Spirit is simply having a conscience. Do you get what I'm saying? I think we tend to think that because I have the Holy Spirit, all that means is like I know the difference between right and wrong. And I'm telling you guys, that is not a fundamental difference between your current state and your prior state. It's not. The Holy Spirit is more than a conscience. It is a person. Not just any person, the person of God dwelling within you. And this changes uh, our lives in a couple of ways, really. The first is that... uh, Look, to be a Christian isn't just to set our mind on what is right and wrong. It's not just to, to be a moral, uh, decent person and to try, you know, try to live a good life. It is to set our mind on the person of God. It is quite literally to have a relationship with the person of God who lives inside of us. That is the, the first the primary fundamental difference between your state now and your state prior is that is a relationship with God, the person of God indwelling in you. And so to walk in the Spirit doesn't look like saying, uh, you know, what would Jesus do as if he's just some historical figure and I just have to figure out and do what's right and not what's wrong, etc. It looks like speaking with Jesus who lives inside of you. <laughs> Actually n- nurturing, developing that relationship as he seeks to have an intimate relationship with you. And this changes the way that we view sin, right? It changes the way that we view God's law altogether. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts, right? It's that sin primarily, it it is sin because it breaks apart our relationship with God. That is what makes it sin, is that it tears us apart from God, right? Right? It's not just because this is right or this is wrong. What makes it right or wrong is because it tears us apart from God first and then one another. Secondly, the Spirit of God wasn't given to us just to convict us of our sin, like I said, and tell us what's right and wrong. Even the person of God doesn't just dwell in us to say, do this and don't do this, right? He's, he's not some, some father, you know, yelling at his kids on the sideline on the soccer field saying, stop, do that, do you, whatever. And, no, he's, he's a teammate right there with you on the field, showing you himself how to, how to play, picking you up when you fall down, standing up with you against your competitors, against your enemies. He's right there, and, and it is not just him telling you what to do and what not to do. It's an extra set of hands. And again, not just anyone's hands. God's hands. It is not just his presence, it's his power. We have a new power within us that we did not have before. And it's not our power, it is God's power. And if we set our mind on his spirit living within us, Paul says that the Spirit of God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will give life to you. 
Think about that just for a moment. This is one of my favorite uh, passages in all of Scripture. Because the Spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, just think about that, raised a person from the dead, transformed his earthly body into this incredible, new, glorified state of a human being. I mean, it's just incredible. That's the power of the Spirit. That's the power in you to transform you. And we say, I can't possibly be perfect. It's arrogant to think that I could be perfected in God's love, that I could live without sin. And I say it is arrogant to say that God doesn't have the power to do that within us. You get what I'm saying? The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, that power lives in us. That's huge. Therefore, Paul says, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Do we really believe this? That from this moment forward till the day that we die, we need not sin. I want you to think about it, reflect on it. That from this moment forward till the day you die, you need not sin. I'm going to guess that even some of us who believe that still think that, well, we will anyway. I know I don't have to sin, but I believe, I, I believe, in fact, I know that I will. And I get it. Trust me, I get it. I'm right, I'm right there with you. But do you believe truly that we don't need to? That's what Paul says is the truth. And look, I, let's talk about that youthful ambition that I once had, that when Christ came into my life and I knew his love and I knew that this new power living within me, I really thought God could change me, transform me for good, complete his work in me. I never had to sin again and then I failed and I failed and I failed and I failed and I soon learned that it's just easier not to believe all of that naive crap. It's easier to be comfortable with losing the battle against sin than it is to stand up against it. It's easier um, to accept our, our sinfulness, even admit our sinfulness very, very sincerely. Say, you know, I'm a sinner, always will be, whatever, than it is to say, no, God doesn't want me to be a sinner. I don't, I don't have to sin anymore. To renounce it in the favor, or to renounce sin in the name of Jesus Christ. It's easier to lower our expectations than it is to have this radical optimism and hope. Is it not? It's just easier. So then what we strive for and the goal that we set our hearts on, it is far, far less than the overwhelming victory that God has intended for us in Jesus Christ. That's the result. I, uh, someone who I love very dearly, um, but last year had a conversation with me and they were telling me about um, how for a long time they'd been struggling with uh, certain sins in their life and um, they said that the sin was causing them to feel very guilty and shameful. This was the feeling it was causing. And then they heard this teaching and the teaching they heard was from uh, a famous pastor actually, a pastor who I have a lot of respect for. I just very much disagree with his teaching. And I'll tell you why. Because the teaching that she heard, that she told me about, was this. And you guys have probably heard this before. No one's perfect. 
Nobody's perfect, and nobody ever will be. Nobody ever can be. Only Jesus was perfect. And that's true to an extent. All have fallen short of the glory of God, yes. I mean, Paul says that in Romans chapter 3. All have fallen short. That doesn't mean that all need to fall short. That all will continue to fall short. Do you get what I'm saying? So this teaching that she heard was just that nobody's perfect, no one ever will be, no one ever can be, and, and here's why she clings to that teaching, this person. is because that teaching helped her to feel free from her guilt and shame. Right? It's by saying that the standard is lower than it otherwise would have been. That is, that is how she felt less guilty and less ashamed of her sin. And look, I get that. I've done this, all right? So this is not a criticism, but you've got to know why that teaching is false. First, it forces us to limit God. When we say that, that nobody can become perfect in God's love, that, nobody, that we have to sin, basically, that we eventually will. So when we say that, when we adopt that belief in our heads or in our hearts, whether we know it or not, we limit what God can do. We stop praying for it. We stop asking for it. We stop seeking it. We stop expecting it. Every sin we do, we can chalk up to the fact that it's just because that was going to happen anyway. Do you get what I'm saying? So we limit God. We limit his will in our life. And secondly, even more importantly, it forces us to abandon the gospel And here's what I mean, is that when we need to lower our hopes and expectations in order to be free of guilt, we have forgotten who actually freed us from our guilt. Does that make sense? Whenever, whenever we lower our expectations to be free from guilt, we have forgotten that the only reason that we are not guilty, that we need not be ashamed, is because Christ was perfect, that God is perfect, that he loved us, that he sent his son to die for our sins. Not because we weren't sinful, not because we won't be sinful, because we were sinful, because we are sinful. And it, it, that's the heart of the gospel. It's the first half of the gospel. And when we adopt this teaching that nobody's perfect and no one ever can be or will be, we're basically saying, nope, I don't need Jesus. We are freeing ourselves from guilt by a means other than the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Does that make sense? It is in those moments where we feel guilt and shame. I've been in so many of those moments. It is in those moments where the gospel can really penetrate our hearts. It's in those lowest moments where we say, God, I, I, I'm not worthy. God, I've sinned. I, I can't possibly be worthy of your grace, of your salvation. And then you remember, oh my God, this, this is the gospel. This is why Jesus came and died for me. Those moments that the gospel becomes real. And if we never pursue righteousness, we'll never have those moments we never pursue his perfect love and sinlessness, we'll never have those moments and the gospel will never invade and take over the core of our being. As we read on, I hope you'll see that any spirit that tells you otherwise is not the spirit of God. We're going to read verse uh, 14 through 17 now. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. 
So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. Abba is a term that means dad. It's a very uh, intimate term. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. Uh, About five years ago, when my heart was radically changed by the Lord, um, I began pursuing him. Like, really, for the first time. And I, like I said, I had this youthful ambition. Um, but I was in this cycle, right, that I'm still in in some ways, but it's this cycle. I would fall short. I would sin. And then I'd feel this incredible, this, this guilt and this shame that that other person felt that I was telling you about, right? Um, and, and in that moment, I, in those moments, I would actually, I would doubt my salvation at times. Just how could I possibly, is my faith even real, you know? Um, I would fear really approaching God and just think I can't possibly, um, you know, it, it would offend God for me to even pray to him right now because I've just been so simple. <laughs> yeah, you, get, you get what I'm saying? You guys ever been there? And I'd be in those moments and then I, I'd beat myself up in those moments just enough to where I could, I could convince myself that I was once again worthy. Like I'd, I'd done my, I'd, I'd paid for my own sin. You get what I'm saying? And then I'd repent and I'd, I'd strive again and then I'd fall and then I'd, and the whole cycle would repeat itself over and then about, about two years into that, um, God's spirit began to speak to me one week. It was just kind of out of nowhere and he said, Jake, you are my child. Simply, he's just, it was an affirmation, this confirmation, the sense of, of really being his child that I'd never had before. And this is what Paul's talking about, how his spirit testifies to us that we are his children. He said, Jake, you are my child. You're not my employee who needs to, to fear uh, termination at any point in time. You know, you're not my slave who needs to work uh, to, to get a seat in my table or to have a, a bed in my house, okay? You are my child who has the keys to my kingdom, the keys to my house, a seat at my table, not because you chose me, because I chose you. Man, that's the gospel, right? In any voice that tells us otherwise is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. So the voice of God, it doesn't make me fearful. It doesn't make me guilty. It doesn't make me ashamed. But it also doesn't make me complacent. I want to read a a verse for you from this wonderful book written in the 1700s called A Plain Account of Christian Perfection, um, written by our very own John Wesley. Um, For what it's worth, this is not a new doctrine, (laughs) all right? Uh, people ask him this uh, if we're pursuing this to be perfected in God's love is it possible to even have peace and joy in the middle even though we continue to fall short of it right he says certainly we may don't let believers be discouraged from rejoicing in the Lord always and yet we may be sensibly pained at the sinful nature that still remains in us we it's a good thing it is good for us to have a piercing sense of our sin and a vehement desire to be delivered from it But this should only cause us the more zealously to fly every moment to our strong helper, the more earnestly to press forward to the mark, the prize of our high calling in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this last sentence. This is is the key right here. And when the sense of our sin most abounds, the sense of his love much more abounds. That is where 
our freedom from guilt, our freedom from shame is released. Is that when the sense of our sin most abounds as we are pursuing and yet falling short, the sense of his love much more abounds. It's from this place, it's from this knowledge that I'm a child of God. It's from this knowledge that God shows me, that God loves me in spite of my sin, that I can pursue perfection, sinlessness. I I can pursue that without being ashamed, that I've not yet reached it. Guys, I'm not saying I've reached it. I, I have not. No, we're close yet. I can pursue it without being disappointed that I've not yet attained it. I I, I can have joy and peace in that pursuit. I can set my expectations and my hopes on complete and total victory in spite of my failures because of what Christ has done. I can wear red unashamedly because I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I get an amen? Today, brothers and sisters in Christ, wear red with me. Restore your youthful ambition to be completely free of sin. Pray that Jesus' prayer is answered when he says, Father, I pray that they are one, just as you and I are one, and I pray that they can be in me and I and them and you and me and us and them. That's John 17. That's Jesus' prayer is this radical intimacy where sin no longer reigns. Jesus prayed it because Jesus wants it. Let's pursue the very thing that Jesus said when he says in Matthew 5, 46, you therefore shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And let's pursue it with joy Let's pursue it with confidence. Let's pursue it with hope, free of guilt and shame. And in the power and love of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for your Holy Spirit. We so badly need your power. We so badly want your power to overcome, so we just recognize it, we claim it, we claim your victory. (laughs) We put our faith in it, not worried that we might fall, we just keep our eyes set on the prize before us. You are awesome. Would you please bless us with the greater sense of your presence, with the greater sense of your power? Would you you please bless those of us here who, who have not yet receive the inner witness of the Spirit that we are children of God, would you please, God, give us that amazing gift. Free us from sin. For your glory, for our joy. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.